Hello and welcome to the MGMA Insider Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Today we're joined by consultant and author Owen Dahl, who is a process improvement guru. Owen's going to walk us through some keys to making process improvements in a medical practice. Owen, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, you're welcome, Daniel. I'm looking forward to this opportunity to chat. Great. Now, first, if you could, please share with our audience your background in healthcare and what's interesting you right now about working with healthcare professionals. Well, okay. Uh, again, thank you, Daniel, for this opportunity. Uh, and <clears throat> my background is I've been in healthcare for a long time. <laughs> I started out as a uh, hospital administrator and uh, back in the early 80s, uh, shifted gears into physician practice management. So I've been doing that ever since. Uh, and, and so my, my focus is really on the whole idea of, of what we can do to improve patient care. Uh, and, I, and I continually emphasize that idea. And I think the idea that, that I have and what I try to share with folks is that uh, as healthcare professionals, and believe me, there are some incredible people that I've had the opportunity to meet and work with. Uh, they, they're, they're really sharp. And, and yet in our world, uh, there are still opportunities for us to, to seek improvement in how we do things in, in meeting that objective of providing patient care. Great. Now you write books and you teach courses and you give presentations on what we'll call process improvements. And for our audience, how do you define process improvements and why are they such an important part of medical practices? I mean, are process improvements, are they all one of a kind? Are there different types of process improvements? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Let me back up for a second then and help define uh, the idea of process improvement. And that, that really has probably got three or four different sections that lead to an outcome. Uh, section one is to identify and, and to be proactive in identifying areas where we could improve in providing care. Once we've done that, uh, okay, so we see the picture, then what do we do? We've got to analyze it in some way, shape, or form to help us deal with that. And then we have to seek ways to improve. And all of that together really is trying to meet the quality of care standards, if you will, uh, that, that we would have. So process improvement is, is really then identifying, analyzing, and then seeking ways to improve the quality of care that we provide for our patients. Okay. Now, by their nature, are processes broken at the typical medical practice? I mean, do we overcomplicate it? It seems like they're, I mean, you're the expert on it. There should be a, a, a you know, a common flow of, of reaching patients and getting them through and getting them to their outcomes. And it seems like the processes are always in need of some doctoring, so to speak. And what's going on there? Well, that, that again is an interesting question, and I like your expression of doctoring. Uh, and, and I think that that really says a lot about what I think we need to do. Uh, and that is that physicians themselves are trained in a certain way, and they're very efficient in terms of decision-making and analysis of the process that goes on in terms of patient care. Uh, but unfortunately, that concept hasn't translated necessarily directly from that physician-patient interaction to an interaction either with their management team or that they've not 
been able to share that directly and get their management team to buy into that kind of idea. So if, and I, what I like to do is I like to think about it is, is I ask everyone and I would ask everyone listening to this podcast, uh, what, was, what was the last time you as a person went to a doctor's office? What was your experience like? And when you, when you get that, you put it into a more personal perspective. So you start to think about, okay, how long did I wait? Did I enjoy that time in that reception area? Uh, how was the interaction with the staff? Uh, did I get my questions answered by the provider or the clinician that I, that I interacted with? Was there good follow-up? All of those things are basic processes and basic concepts. Uh, but what I find is that it, not all of those pieces, but many of the pieces are broken. And if, if we can find a way to get a 5% improvement in that process, I think we can gain a lot of benefit for our patients. And so your, your comment about overcomplicating, uh, sometimes I think we do, because uh, if, I, if I think about how we as management folks look at things, I think we're really good at measuring things. I think we're really good at analyzing things, but did we define the right problem? And did we in fact then come up with the best way to improve that process? And th those are the kinds of bookends, if you will, beyond the measuring and analyzing those, those bookends that, that we don't seem to do a real good job on. And I'm, and I'm not being critical because look, we've been successful. We continue to provide patient care. Uh, our outcomes seem to and are headed toward an improvement model. So then uh, to, to, to look at that, what that gets me back to is another term that I like to talk a lot about, and that is the culture of the organization. Mm -hmm. Does the organization encourage staff to be involved with and to look toward ways to improve, uh, to seek efficiencies, or are you kind of... Uh, one of my favorite acronyms is TW squared ADI, the way we've always done it. So it, it's not necessarily overcomplicated. It's just simply we fall back into that security area where it's this is the way we've always done it. So therefore, it must be right. Uh, I, I would challenge everyone to say, I don't think it's quite right yet. I think we can improve. Okay. Now, I want to take a step back and ask you about processes in general to your life. Um, they're, they're so integral into your teaching, into your writing. Where did this come about? Were you brought up with specific processes? Did you have a mentor along the way? What, what happened where you got so passionate and so interested and involved in processes and how things work? Wow. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I had a mentor. I did grow up in a small town. My dad was a grocer. So I grew up literally, literally where my first 10 years of life were, were living in a small apartment in the back of a grocery store. And so every day I got influenced and involved in that uh, kind of idea about, okay, what are we doing today? What can we do today? How can we make sure that we're getting things done? So I probably had some of those seeds planted back then. But the real kicker for me was uh, in the, in the, as I mentioned earlier, in the, uh, started in the practice management world. Uh, one of the things that I did was uh, a study of a three doctor practice looking at how they were taking care of their patients. 
And, and this was through, through discussion with the physicians. And it was like, well, wait a minute, there are a lot of gaps here. And so total quality management, W. Edwards Deming, uh, Joseph Duran, uh, Phil Cosby, those folks were people that at that time were talking about this in other industries. And so I think one of the keys that we have for our learning process, and probably one of the triggers for me, was that at that time we were talking about quality as job one, different things like that that were in the, in the general industrial market. And it was like, well, if they do it there, why can't we do it where we do? You know? And so I think I didn't really necessarily have a mentor, but it sort of evolved into this perspective of, hey, we can do things. And as I said earlier, and I, I criticize myself a lot in that uh, I've been doing this for 50 plus years. And in doing that, uh, I've still failed because we're still not good. We're still not perfect. Sure. And I don't mean to look at myself. I mean to say to all of us, to challenge us, that it's okay to try these things and recognize that there will be failures along the way, but we need to continue to, to seek ways to improve. Right. Uh, you mentioning dimming and total quality management, those brought back a lot of uh, memories for me from business school. Uh, most of the time I was in school back in the 80s and the application and examples, our case studies, were with the automobile industry. And that's where I learned about that first. Um, now, in that industry, much <laughs> a lot of the labor, the, the efficiencies and the processes have been achieved through robotics. So what it, do you see any advancements to the degree in uh, the medical field where we would have, I know we talk about AI a lot, but I mean, where robots, robotics would play a bigger role here? Well, that, that again, is, I love your line of thought. And <clears throat> yes, it's true. Uh, the automobile industry was the big one that we learned about, or you, I'm, I was in school a lot earlier than that, but uh, the Ford was quality job one. Uh, Toyota developed and put together a uh, Toyota production system. Uh, and interestingly enough, that was done by W. Edwards Deming, who was an American. Mm -hmm. Uh, we exported after World War II our level of expertise to Japan, and now we're bringing that back. So <clears throat> I think that there's a lot that we can learn from other industries. And uh, to, to address your point about robotics and so on, uh, <clears throat> if you think about how the healthcare system works when you're a patient, uh, basically you, you go through what I define as an assembly line. You check in, you see the triage, you see the clinician, you get some activity immediately after the clinician, and then you check out. So that's nothing more than an assembly line. And if that's the case, what can we do? Well, I, I don't think healthcare necessarily would be totally beneficial being robotic. AI, uh, telemedicine, uh, certainly the EMR modeling and that sort of thing have helped us, but they've also hurt us in that, that what they do is they take away that interaction, that personal interaction that we have with our patients. And so uh, I think if we can take a part of that automobile industry and say, what can we do to fix our assembly line? And then at the same time, remember that we have that interaction that is so important to have with our patients. Uh, even, even the Gen Xers, the Gen Yers, those that are more into the digital world still value that interaction 
that we have with our patients. So uh, yes, look at the industries, understand that process, but then extract from them the things that are best applicable to our medical practice. Right, I was having a conversation with a, another expert just the other day talking about physician leadership. And when you're talking about that personal touch, that really hit home with me because when you, when you go back to what you had mentioned earlier about, think about your experience when you go to a medical practice, when you have a doctor's visit, and what a difference it makes, just the simple act of eye contact, what a difference that makes as opposed to seeing the top of someone's head as they're jotting down notes or tapping it out on an iPad or whatever that may be. What are your thoughts about that? Because I, I am really interested in, in that human touch, that personal connection to help the process not only be efficient, but be a better uh, you know, experience for the patient. Well, <clears throat> interesting you say that because on the one hand, what we're talking about here is how can we be more efficient? So how can we get patients through faster? How can we see patients? How can we see more patients by being more efficient? And so if that's the driver, that becomes a problem. But there's a phrase that's big now, and that's uh, engagement. And so how do, we, how do we find a combination of being efficient and at the same time engaging our patients? So Gallup uh, survey company has done a number of surveys over the years, and they came up with three, three numbers, 55, 38, and 7. And <clears throat> when you think about engagement, what you just mentioned was eye contact. Well, uh, eye contact and, and, and so on is, is an important part of that 55, 38, and 7. So it's body language, then it's tone of voice, and then it's words that are used. Okay. So the 7% is what we worry about words. What words are we saying? Rather than what message are we sending by not doing eye contact, by body language, by shouting, uh, by crying, by whatever tone of voice kind of uh, aspect that we might have. So <clears throat> I think it's important for every practice to think through how can we be more efficient and at the same time, how can we be more engaging, which gets to another word you used, and that's experience. Because mm -hmm. the experience that that patient has is a combination of our efficiency and our engagement as we, as we look at it. Right. Well, I want to turn the page here, uh, you're going to be presenting the closing keynote session at the data conference. That's going to be Saturday, May 18th in Orlando. Um, what's that session going to be about? What, what are you going to focus on and what do you hope people get out of it? Well, I'm really looking forward to that. And the reason I am is because by the end of a three-day conference, all of the attendees have seen some incredible presentations. They've had some great networking opportunities and talking with the folks and so on. So they've got hundreds of things floating through their mind. And what I think is important is for them to stop. And so what I hope to open up the session with actually is to challenge everybody to stop for a minute and think about the top three things that they learned that they can take away. And, and I do that because you can't go away with a hundred ideas. Because if you go away with 100 or 50 or 30 ideas, you're not going to follow up on anything. So it's important that they stop and say, okay, what can I take back 
what do I want to take back? What do I think would benefit my practice most from the sessions that I've had? So even, even stopping and, and doing that, I think is, is really going to be an important part of what we can do and what I intend to do with that, with that final session. Okay. Now, when you do a session like this, uh, have a presentation, do you have specific tools uh, that you give out to the attendees or could, to help drive home what they've learned? What, what's your process as far as that's concerned? Yeah, and, they, and, there, and there I go back to the Toyota world with the lean uh, process and, and the forerunner from total quality management and re-engineering and all these other terms that we've heard over the years. Uh, and, and I think, again, you have to have that, you have to have that culture that says we are willing to do some things. We want to change. But from there, what I like to think about is I like to think about getting some kind of structure to the process that I'm going through. And so I use either DMAIC, which is define, measure, analyze, improve, or control, or PDSA, which is plan, do, study, and act. Those are both called deployment platforms. And so, and, and so you, okay, so you, you got that. And what are that? That basically fits with the problem-solving process we've all learned in, in school. Okay, great. But what I find in the Greenbelt program and some of the other programs that I get involved with um, is that everybody sort of falls back into sort of the TW squared ADI again. I do my problem solving the way I've always done it. Right. What we want to do is we want to say, well, wait a minute. There are some newer tools or there are some beneficial tools that you could use. And even something as simple as brainstorming with your staff to develop a process map or a flow chart. Using sticky notes on a brown paper, just kind of that idea of saying, okay, what do we do? We define what our current state is. And when we get people starting to talk about that, what we're going to find out is, oh, you know, we could do this differently. And if I've got three receptionists from three different offices that are in the room and I'm asking them questions, I'm going to find three different ways to do the same thing. Well, one of those is efficient. And how can we look at that and make that happen? So a process map, an FMEA, a five Ys, five S's, cause and effect diagram. Uh, there are, uh, you know, using control charts, using a lot of different tools that are taught in the lean world. Uh, what they do is they tweak your problem solving process. They don't necessarily change it. But what they do is they tweak it to the point that they help you better define and better understand, better analyze, leading you to what? leading you to a more improved process. And then one of the keys that I think we fail on is that, okay, now we've done that. And we're so, as you said, complicated, overcomplicated. We're so busy in our world that we say, okay, I've told everybody to do it that way. They wash their hands of the project and then leave instead of controlling it or following up on it. So what I want people to do is to think about, okay, I can use these different tools. I can approach it in sort of a similar fashion to what I do, but, but then what am I going to do a month from now? Okay, I've, I've changed everything in two weeks. Got this whole new system in place. Everybody's excited about it. Go back a month after that and find out if we're back to the way we've always done it or if we, in fact, are doing it the new way. So holding ourselves and our staff accountable becomes very important in that aspect. And I don't think we do a real good job 
of that part of that interaction and then go forward with that. Sure. And I wanted to ask you then, so measuring these processes is vital. I mean, you can have all the processes in the world in place, but are you, are you doing a better job? Are you more efficient? And you don't know that, truly know that unless you, you measure it and use some of the tools out there available? Right. Just here's, here's an example that I would use. Uh, and, and again, all of these tools apply in every aspect of what we do, but I use a typical patient visit. So I'll, I'll ask the audience, uh, what's your average cycle time for a 99213? And most of the time the answer is, oh man, about 45 minutes or about an hour and a half or whatever. Well, okay, how can you fix about? <laughs> you can't fix about. But mm -hmm. if you knew that your cycle time was 64 minutes, and you could find ways to improve that by 5%, what you've done is you've made that cycle time down to 60 minutes or in that vicinity. And so what you end up doing is finding ways to do that. But if you don't measure it, if you don't make that commitment to measuring those kinds of things, uh, and we're very good at measuring our P&L, we're very good at measuring what our overhead rate is for uh, staff salaries, we know those things. And so if, if you didn't know those, you wouldn't know what to do to improve. You wouldn't think about improving and you wouldn't know how to improve or if you improved unless you had that baseline in fact in place. So I think what really becomes important is that you do measure and you develop that baseline for, from within which you can then move to a future state of an improved model of patient care or an improved model of hiring and reducing our turnover rate, uh, reducing our denial rate, doing a number of things like that that lead to waste of resources that could be utilized doing other things. Right. Well, let's walk through a couple of scenarios then, some real life scenarios Let's first tackle it from the perspective of a practice that's, that's struggling with its day-to-day -day operations that either has poorly designed processes or almost virtual, well, non-existent, I guess they would still have a process in place, but just a, one that doesn't work. It might be broken or just hanging on. Let's, let's look at that. What does it look like in reality here? Well, again, uh, <clears throat> if, I have to ask everybody, okay, what's your biggest problem that you have in your practice? Mm -hmm. is it patient wait time? Is it denial rate? Is it turnover rate? Is it things of that nature? So once we, once we establish that, kinds of examples that we've seen is that once we, say, took the turnover rate and improved the interview process, got away from uh, crisis hiring, and then developed a better onboarding process. So we went through improving the interview process itself, hiring the right person, and then onboarding the right person. So that's three different processes uh, that we were able to fix. Then we reduced that turnover rate by almost 50%. And that's a significant dollar savings and a significant resource savings. Uh, there's an example of another practice that I didn't work directly with, but participated in some of the programs that I've done, uh, where they were actually, in that patient cycle time, were pretty efficient because their number was like 31 minutes. 
from check-in to check-out. Wow, okay. Whoa, that's crazy. How could you do that if you allow 15 minutes for the doctor, okay? Uh, and, and what they were able to do is they were still able to tweak some of the supporting aspects around that doctor visit, and they got it down to 28 minutes. And, and so when you, when you think about using these tools, uh, you, can, you can easily find ways to do things. Like even another example is looking at the 5S. Well, 5S talks about identifying things that are cluttering your area, your work area, your processes, and so on. Well, walk around your office and take pictures of desks, take pictures of different things that you, you would see in the corner. And when you see those things, all of a sudden you say, well, do I really need that there? Do I, can I do something differently? And that sort of thing. And so even simple steps like that can help a lot. Uh, another real good tool is the five whys. And the five whys is you ask, why are you doing it that way? Well, that's the way we've always done it. Well, why have you always do it, done it that way? Well, because that's the way Peggy taught us. And then somebody says, excuse me, I don't have a why, but I want to know who, who's Peggy? Well, you know, Peggy was an employee 10 years ago. <laughs> so we're doing it the way Peggy taught everybody else to do it 10 years ago. Uh, and so once you use some of these tools, you begin to say, hey, I can, I can improve what I'm doing. And again, I don't want to just focus on that patient cycle because denial rates, we've seen significant improvements in reducing denials. We've seen improvements in turnover rate. We've seen improvements in uh, credential processing time and, and maintaining licenses and, and uh, you know, DEA licenses, different things like that that can fall through the cracks that we don't know how to handle. All of a sudden we come up with a system then, and uh, through the analysis phase, and then we fix it. So there are a number of things like that that work really well. Well, Owen, those are wonderful insights, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting to meet you in person in Orlando. Uh, thanks again to Owen for joining the podcast. You can hear him speak Saturday, May 18th at the Data Conference. The Data Conference will be held in Orlando, Florida at the Swan and Dolphin Resort. And you can learn more about the event and register at mgma.com slash datacon. That's data, C-O-N, all one word. Thanks so much for being an MGMA Insider. I'm Daniel Williams.